For the week of August 16th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, it is a big one. First, we chat with The Strangers, Anna Sophia Knauf and Stephen Shea, about their on-the-scene coverage of the Patriot Prayer Rally and its counter-protest that happened on Sunday the 13th in Seattle. Then, we talk with the Washington State Democratic Party's Director of Organizing and Strategic Campaigns, Dylan Kate, about what has been happening with the Summer of Canvas. And then, we have a very special guest. My mom, Janice Cox, is coming on to talk about her experiences canvassing this summer. All of that, plus our call to action. We are joined now by Anna Sophia Knauf and Stephen Shea of The Stranger. They were both on the scene for the two rallies in Seattle that happened on Sunday, August 13th, both of which came on the heels of the deadly violence in Charlottesville the day before. Stephen Shea and Anna Sophia Knauf, welcome. Thanks for Hello, having us. Thank you for having us. Of course. So, Stephen, I want to start with you. Uh, you covered the rally that was organized by a Vancouver, Washington group called Patriot Prayer, which converged in Westlake Park. And that is a rally that I should mention was organized before the events happened in Charlottesville. So that had been planned for a while. Um, how, first of all, how many people were at this Patriot Prayer rally and who were they? Um, at the rally itself, um, I would say there were about... Three dozen, roughly three dozen um, supporters of the Patriot Prayer Group um, who were vastly outnumbered by um, counter-protesters who um, stood outside the rally. The setup was kind of weird. Um, the pro-Trump supporters, they're mostly pro-Trump supporters, um, were enclosed uh, by metal barricades um, set up by the police while the counter-protesters were outside kind of peering in um, to this fishbowl. And so give us an idea of who they were. I know that uh, the, the rally itself was organized by a man named Joey Gibson from Vancouver, Washington. Tell us a little bit about him and about his group. So Joey Gibson, um, he came to prominence before the election. Um, he organized local um, Trump, pro-Trump gatherings, um, mostly in Portland, um, but also in that this general region. Um, since the election, um, he's emerged as it's the closest thing the Pacific Northwest has to an alt-right figurehead. Um, and he organizes rallies under the guise of supporting free speech, which is ironic because um, these rallies need permits from the cities that they're taking place in um, in order for them to take place. So somebody is already permitting their speech to happen. Um, and the other value um, he claims is uh, Christian values. So that's where the prayer comes from. I see. Not everybody who attends these rallies belong to Patriot Prayer. It's a mix. Um, some have these subsets of alt-right groups. Um, one is called the Proud Boys, which is a national group. Um, and then there is a local group called the Cascade Legion. And it's important to make the distinction, I think, that they don't explicitly claim white nationalist and white supremacist views as some of the people who went to Charlottesville do. Yeah, you mentioned that in your article. You say that Gibson, when he got up to speak, actually denounced the KKK and the white supremacist violence in Charlottesville. So what specifically was his message then? 
that's it's very difficult to say. Uh, if you if you ask Gibson, he would say his message is free speech, um, which we've already went over why right. um, that's ironic and confusing. Um, other than that, it's basically impossible to discern what his message is because he doesn't really have a message other than providing a space for um, these groups to gather. And I should say that um, Gibson was present and part of the organizing of a rally in Portland that Jeremy Christensen, I think it's Christensen, attended. And he, of course, is the man who stabbed Mm -hmm. two people to death in Portland. Um, And he has uh, very vocally expressed white supremacist views. So these are the sorts of people that he attracts to his rallies. Correct. Correct. Ana Sophia, I want to bring you in. You covered the counter-protest. I suppose those are the people who were not already a part of the counter-protest at Westlake mm-hmm. Park. And the, the one that you covered began, I believe, at Denny Park with the intention of marching to confront the Patriot Prayer Rally over at Westlake Park. How many people were part of that protest? Um, As far as I know, I don't think there have been exact numbers that were confirmed, but in Denny Park, the park appeared flooded. There were hundreds of people there um, who who had signs, some of whom were were Antifa organizers, um, some of whom were ordinary folks who wanted to come to denounce the violence in Charlottesville. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the so-called Antifa or anti-fascist groups. What can you tell us about those groups? Um, well, the anti-fascist groups, a lot of them, um, their point of view, from my understanding, um, is that they are there to denounce and basically stop um, fascist, pro-Nazi, pro-white nationalist rhetoric um, before it even starts. I guess their point of view is to curb some types of free speech, basically. I also stand, understand that many of the groups condone violence uh, to that end, yes? Um, there are some groups that do. Um, in talking to some Antifa um, researchers um, for previous a previous article that I've written regarding free speech, um, their perspective is that they want to condemn fascist rhetoric at all costs. You reported uh, on a number of police in riot gear present for this. Actually, your live tweeting of the event was especially compelling. I, I really w- would encourage people to go and check that out on, on Twitter, and I'll provide a link to that on the website. There were a few clashes between the police and the protesters. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, there were um, police originally when we, were, when we began marching from Denny Park. Protesters tried to um, head down to Westlake Park via, I believe, 5th and 6th Avenue, but were immediately blocked off by Seattle police um, who were in riot gear at both intersections. There was a scuffle of some sort at Pine and 3rd Avenue, um, which was just a couple blocks away from Westlake Park, um, which is when um, Seattle police officers, still armed with riot gear, began using uh, pepper spray as well as um, blast balls to, for I guess, for crowd control purposes in their point of view. Um, in protesters' point of view, I believe people felt it was just acts of intimidation, period. Some of the people who take the who took the front line of the protest immediately in front of police, were, I believe, were some of the Antifa organizers. Um, some of those folks began um, spraying silly string at those police officers on the front line. Which is kind of an extraordinary image. <laughs> For, I guess, whatever credit I could give to the Seattle police, they didn't really seem to respond to being silly stringed at all. Um, they were pretty calm about it and just wiped it away. 
But at some point, I think some protesters got too close and um, SPD officers began using batons to push them back. And I think at that point, that is when um, the pepper spray was used against demonstrators. And shortly after that, blast balls were dispensed and there was kind of just complete chaos for a couple of minutes. Um, I met with a handful of people who were um, sprayed directly in the face. Um, One man, um, I believe his name was Anthony Gazzotti, said that um, he was maced directly in the face when he was trying to prevent protesters from spraying silly string at the officers. And he was then was in the direct line of fire um, of those uh, pepper spray canisters. And he, I believe, who is indigenous, said that he hadn't seen anything quite like this um, since he was last in Standing Rock protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline. Stefan, if I may add one thing, the SPD has stated after the rally that, uh, well, first they defended the tactics that they used, and they've stated that their mission for the day was to prevent an altercation between the Antifa protesters and the pro-Trump protesters. The last time Joey Gibson held a rally, the march against Sharia was the purpose, and their were small scuffles that broke out um, between uh, the two sides. And so, yeah, I just think it's important to um, get that across. Absolutely. So before we go, I'd like to get your sense of something, having covered these events over the weekend. Ana Sophia, do you feel that given the politics, the current politics of Seattle, that these sorts of clashes are fated to happen again? Um. Basically, I feel like in Seattle, we're in this political climate where we want to condemn any kind of speech that threatens immigrants, threatens women, threatens trans folks, threatens anyone who um, feels threatened by the rhetoric of the people emboldened by Donald Trump and Donald Trump himself. Um, So because of that, I feel like people don't want to stand by while possible white nationalists come into our city. Um, and spew hate. Um, Instead, people want to make sure that the world knows that we are condemning this and not supporting it in any way, especially in silence. Well, Anna Sophia Knauf and Stephen Shea, thank you so much for your reporting, and we'll we'll check back again. Thank you so much. Time now for this week's call to action. And honestly, you guys, I think we should just get right to it. If you're like me, and I'm sure that you are in this regard, you have been alternately horrified, grief-stricken, disgusted, enraged by the events of the last few days. I won't revisit them because, frankly, I don't have to, other than to reiterate what many are saying, and that is there is only one side, just one, and it is the right side of history. Make no mistake, we are living history right now. What we do matters. I will say then that if, like me, you have also felt momentarily hopeless, I have a couple of very powerful things that you can do for this week's call to action. Seattle Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal has just introduced two bills, and they need our support. The first is a resolution demanding the removal of white nationalists from the Trump administration, specifically Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller, and Sebastian Gorka. It is hard to believe that this is something that was ever allowed to even happen in the first place, but it has, and now it's our job to get behind the push to get rid of them. Call your rep and tell him or her to support this measure. It is backed by over 31 members of Congress. 
also in her tireless efforts leading the charge, Congresswoman Jayapal has also introduced a resolution to officially censure Trump for his repeated comments blaming, quote, both sides in the violence in Charlottesville. This is a big one. It's the most significant move Congress can make against a sitting president short of impeachment. Ask your rep to support censure of Donald Trump. And finally, the third thing that you can do, which we are just about to discuss with my next guests, Dylan Kate, as well as my mom, is to canvas to get people registered and get them moved to vote. As you know, turnout will be key to a Democratic victory in the House in 2018. So let's call our reps and ask them to sign on to measures ridding the White House of white nationalists and officially censuring Trump. And let's do everything we can to get out the vote. And that is this week's call to action. Dylan Kate is the director of organizing and strategic campaigns for the Washington State Democrats, and he joins us now. Dylan Kate, welcome. Thanks so much. Really happy to be here. Excellent. So you are here to give us an update on the summer of Canvas. But before we jump in, I'd like to talk briefly about the August 1st primary. Uh, Washington State Democratic Party Chair Tina Podlodowski said on election night that she was doing her happy dance around Monka Dingra's results in the 45th legislative district. I think we're all aware of the stakes of that race. Uh, at this point in the count, uh, Monka is at 51 percent, which is great. Also, Tina mentioned that other Democratic candidates have beaten expectations in other tough districts across the state. You must be feeling pretty pretty good about all that. You know, I think so. I think um, our focus has really changed this year from uh, only being a party that fights in races that we think uh, we can win over the short term to a party that's taking on every race uh, every single year. Um, and so uh, the work in the 45th has just been so incredible. And it's a, an incredible team. Monk is a great candidate who we're all just so excited to, to have have her be sort of the tip of the spear this year for taking back the Senate. Uh, but there's also so much great work going on in other parts of the state. And uh, Tina and I uh, were actually up in Republic Washington, um, which for folks who uh, who don't know where that is, it's uh, close to the Canadian border, sort of in the northeast part of our state. Mm. And it's in the 7th Legislative District, which is a district that has not had a Democrat on the ballot in over a decade. And uh, you know, I didn't know there were places in the state where we did not run Democrats Just for years them, and years yeah. on end, <laughs> you know, until until I started this work. And so we were there because um, because there are two incredible candidates there, Karen Hardy and Susan Swanson, who are incredibly courageous to run and put their name on a ballot in a place where being a Democrat is sort of a dirty word. Um, and they've been doing incredible work to, first of all, let Democrats sort of come out of the closet and say we're here and we're going to we're going to say what we stand for and we're going to be proud about who we are. Um, and they outperformed uh, how you know Hillary Clinton did in 2016, which which is remarkable in a couple of ways. Uh, the first is that there's such a huge difference in what the electorate looks like from a presidential year to a non-presidential year. Right. Um, pretty much everybody and their cousin and their mom votes uh, in November 2016. And we all know that that means that all the Democrats get out and vote because our voters tend to be younger and they tend to be folks who maybe are, are more mobile and aren't voting every single year in primaries year in and year out. So to actually do better than we did in 2016 uh, in an August primary, in an off year, where a lot of folks didn't even know there was an election, um, was just thrilling. And it's one of those places where winning, you know, uh, doesn't mean winning by, you know, with 50% plus one of the vote. It means, you know, winning with 35 or 40% of the vote and figuring out how we talk to voters there and build an infrastructure that's never existed before. And so I think that's why Tina was doing her happy dance and yeah, why yeah, yeah. We're, we're so excited about what's happening up there. Well, so that's your gig. I mean, you are really heavily involved in getting 
turnout. And so I guess I'll ask you, uh, eligible voter turnout across the state has been in the 20 to 30 percent range. King County had a 31 percent turnout. But you don't see that as a problem is, is kind of what you're saying. And you, you also expect the larger turnout in November. Yes. Yeah, well, I would say low turnout is definitely a problem. I, w- I want to be really clear on that. Um, I think, you know, first of all, our democracy is stronger when everyone participates. Uh, and second of all, we know that that candidates who represent underrepresented populations do well when everyone votes because there's so many barriers to voting uh, that getting, you know, making voting accessibility a priority and making sure everyone has the opportunity to vote is just overall good for for Democratic candidates and for our democracy. But, uh, but I do think things will be better in November. Um, it's sort of like, you know, these candidates are swimming upstream against the current uh, in an August primary, and that current will get a little bit softer and a little bit slower. Uh, they'll still be swimming upstream because it's still an odd year. And in the seventh legislative district, I mean, that's a place that, that Donald Trump won 70 to 30 in a presidential year. So wow. uh, there is a lot of work to do. Um, a lot of Democrats didn't even know there was going to be a Democrat on the ballot, so they just didn't vote. And so there's just so much work to do to, to reach out to voters and build relationships and, and rekindle some hope there. Um, but we're going to keep plugging. And, and we don't think of this November as the end point, but just the beginning of sort of phase one of, of this new approach. Well, Tina said in her statement that she released on Twitter that Democratic turnout is usually greater come the general election. Are you anticipating that? Yes, we certainly think turnout will be better. And we hope to have a hand in that, too. Um, but specifically Democrat turnout. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Well, so that all brings us to the summer of Canvas, which is what you are here to discuss. So just really quickly refresh us. Tell us what the summer of Canvas is and how it was conceived. Great question. Um, so the summer of Canvas is really a pivot in uh, in our, our state party's organizing strategy. And we've built a party that's done an incredible job of helping elect statewide candidates in even numbered years. And so we have two incredible senators from our party representing our state. We've got a, one of the best governors in the nation representing our state. You're here. But where we... Yeah, here, here. And where we haven't done as well is uh, winning those local races, right? The, you know, from the school board on up. Uh, and we haven't been doing as well in electing people in central Washington and eastern Washington because we've been so focused on these sort of top of the ticket uh, races that we've sort of forgotten the fundamentals. Um, and we all know that you can't build a house without a foundation and fighting in every single part of the state and making sure that we're recruiting and putting candidates on the ballot and supporting them every single part of the state is the foundation of our party. So the summer of Canvas is sort of our first pivot towards this new strategy, which is to fight in every single race, in every single place, in every year. Um, now, to do that, it means we have to really change how we think about organizing. And the party has often thought about organizing as something that we pay staff to go out and do. And they recruit volunteers and our organizers run canvases and volunteers show up at canvases and knock on doors. And that's how we elect folks. And that's a model that's that's done some incredible things. And the state party ran an incredible campaign last year. But what it doesn't help us do is get to the scale that we need to get to and the geographic scale that we need to get to in a year where we don't have 50 organizers on staff. Um, And the second thing it doesn't do is it doesn't give power back to the volunteers on the grassroots level who are capable of incredible things and who are capable of so much more than just knocking on doors on the list we give them. Uh, So the summer of Canvas is a strategy to give power back to our volunteers and to really teach all of our volunteers to be organizers in their own community. Uh, And so people who are sort of nerds about campaigns or, or field call this distributed canvassing. And what it means is that we recruit and train volunteers to do everything organizers are doing. Uh, so our volunteers now, uh, and we're calling them canvas hosts, uh, mm. they're picking, you know, they're picking 
picking a part of their community or their district or their neighborhood where they want to talk to voters. They're getting into our database and pulling a list of voters and they're cutting the turf. They're making the walk lists. They're recruiting other volunteers from their community. They're doing a bunch of digital work and social media work uh, and recruiting from all of the incredible groups that are doing work right now from Indivisible to uh, the you know 8th Congressional District Alliance to groups up and down the state who are, who are interested in helping Democrats fight back. And they're the ones who are running canvases without a single staff member being on the ground. Whoa. Well, that's new and pretty revolutionary, actually. I think I think in many ways it is. And I think it comes from the recognition that if we're going to have organizers in every single neighborhood across the state, and we know that's what we need, uh, we have to turn to the Democrats who learn, you know, who live in those neighborhoods and, and ask them to be organizers. Um the good news is we've got an incredible group of grassroots leaders who are involved in their local party all over the state who have been really hungry for this. Um, and they've been sort of beating down our door to get involved in, in the summer of campus. And so we really are building a, a, a network of grassroots organizers at the neighborhood level who are capable of doing this this year in, year out uh, listening work to with voters in their in their area. I do want to get into the listening part in just a second, but I do want to get a couple numbers from you before we do. Just give us an idea of how it's been going so far. How many volunteers have you trained and who are active? How many uh, voters have you reached across the state? Can you give us some numbers? Yeah, absolutely. So our goal for this, you know, basically, which was an experiment. We had no idea how this was going to work. This had never been done by the state party before. Our goal was to train uh, 80 grassroots leaders across the state to run really, really incredible canvases in their neighborhood over the course of this summer. Um, and so far, I'm happy to report we've actually trained 200 folks, oh, wow. uh, which means they've gone through uh, a pretty intensive online webinar, uh, and they've gone through step-by-step step, uh, step step support from our organizers, and they've actually launched and led a canvas. So we've had 200 folks who have been involved in leading canvases. Uh, they've put together uh, over 100 canvases just in the first two months of this program. Um, so a lot of them have partnered on canvases, as canvases and brought in outside groups. Uh, and in those 100 canvases, they've talked to voters in over 115 towns and cities and municipalities and unincorporated parts of our state. Wow. Which is a pretty incredible thing to consider that our organizing team is really just two organizers and me. And we've talked to voters in you know, 115 <laughs> towns in two months. What, do you have an idea of how many voters have ultimately been reached across the state then? Yeah, so we've knocked on tens of thousands of doors, uh, and I think we've talked to over 3,000 voters so far. Um, and really that conversation, and we can talk about that later, uh, you know, when we talk about listening. But most of what we're doing is just asking folks about what's on their mind. Um, and we're not pitching particular candidates. We're not pitching particular, uh, you know, we're not necessarily saying you have to become a Democrat, but we're just saying, you know, we're your neighbor and we're Democrats and, and we want to know what's going on in your life. And so we've had that conversation with about 3,000 voters around the state. And beyond that, I think the push is to get people excited enough to actually want to fill out their ballot and send it in. So what have you been directing canvassers to say or what have the canvassers been uh, directing themselves, I guess, to say to try to get people excited and, and fill out the ballots and send them in? Great question. Yeah. And I think, you know, I come from sort of an old school union organizing background. I was a labor organizer for many years. And when you're organizing folks in the union context, you're asking people to take pretty big risks, right? They know that when they're going to vote for a union or they're going to organize for a union, their manager might, you know, pass them over for a promotion or they mm -hmm. might get fired. And sort of 
to get people to be willing to take on that level of risk and, and create new behaviors that they haven't done before, you have to build a relationship first. Um, and so that's the core of the conversation that our volunteers are having across the state uh, is really just a relationship building conversation. Um, so the script is really simple. You know, I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm dealing with your local Democrats. Um, we're out listening to folks in the neighborhood uh, to figure out what, uh, you know, what are our collective shared priorities and make sure that our elected officials are fighting for them. And I'd love to know what's going on with you and your family. You know, could, could we talk for a few minutes? I'd love to hear what's on your mind. Well, that's okay. So then this is the ideal time to jump into that. What are the issues that Washington voters seem to care about most? And and, and just as a follow up to that, how is that informing the party platform? That, so that's such a great question, because this has been really, really interesting for us. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting components is we're getting all this data back from from voters in places where we haven't heard from voters in a long time. So we're we have, you know, a pretty large sample size of voters in Whitman County in eastern Washington. And the number one issue that we've heard above all else is actually health care. Wow. Um, and that was hugely surprising to me. I imagine it was going to be the economy or jobs, uh, sure. you know, jobs, yeah. right? Um, and that's certainly what the consensus is coming out of the election last year is that Democrats didn't do a good job talking about the economy. But, you know, and ironically, in places that are represented by Republican members of Congress who are trying to repeal health care right now, what the voters actually care about is protecting their health care and making sure that their family has safeguards and, and gets the care they need and has access to affordable care. So we're packaging that data um, and we're planning to share it with local uh, parties and candidates so that they can understand, uh, you know, how to talk to different folks about health care and also what are the different issues that people in different neighborhoods talk about. Um, but our goal really isn't you know, this isn't supposed to replace a poll or give people specific messaging guidance. Really, the point that we're trying to prove is when you go out and talk and listen to folks, you find out some really surprising stuff. And you have conversations with folks who you never would have been in contact with had you just showed up and said, hey, will you vote for the Democrats? And you're out there doing it as well. What are some of the interesting th- what are some of the more interesting things that you've heard personally from voters? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the most interesting voters are folks who, um, <laughs> you know, who voted uh, for Trump and who are now sort of realizing the implications of that. Um, and we've talked to lots of voters who sort of said, you know, I didn't think it was ever, I didn't think he was actually going to become president or I didn't take it really seriously. It was almost a protest vote in the same way that people would vote for third party candidates. Um, but, but who are just incredibly surprised about all the different ways that this impacts their lives. Um, and a lot of our volunteers are folks who are avid consumers of the news and can really bring things home to roost for folks when people bring up health care or bring up um, issue of service in the military or Russia or whatever's on their mind. You know, there's just so many connections to ways that people's lives have been impacted, um, you know, by this president just in the first six months of, of his tenure. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of regret out there. And that, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, it feels nice to realize that a lot of folks um, regret their vote in November because I, you know, wish they hadn't voted that way. <laughs> but it's certainly to the Democrats' advantage. I mean, there's no question about it. And and I, I guess, you know, it's a little early to talk 2018, but 2018 is the pivotal year in pushing back against the Trump agenda, you know, taking back the House. It It is early right now. We're still in this August 2017. But what is the strategy shaping up like for 2018 for the Washington State Democrats? Really, what we're trying to do right now is build the infrastructure that campaigns are going to run on in 2018. So we know we've got a lot of targeted congressional races. We want to uh, we want to replace Dave Reichert. We want to replace Kathy McMorris Rogers. We want to replace Jamie Herrera Butler and and all of the folks who've been really you know fighting against their constituents' interests for far too long. Uh, but they need 
grassroots power and they need political power, whoever those candidates are going to be who are challenging those, you know, those Republican members of Congress. And so our real mission, our real strategy is to develop as much grassroots leadership as is possible in these districts. And I'm, I'm really happy to report that we've knocked on more doors in Dave Reichert's district in the 8th Congressional District than anywhere else in the state. Um, and we've got dozens of folks in that district who can now lead canvases on their own with very little support from staff. And so what that means once we get out of the primary you know, this time next year, we've got one Democratic candidate facing against Dave Reichert. That candidate is going to have access to an incredible network of people all over their district who on any given weekend can get out and talk to thousands of voters. Um, and that's something we haven't had before. And and what we're really trying to do is build political power that's independent of the amount of money that we have coming into the party or whatever is happening sort of at the grass tops level. We want to devolve power back to people on the grassroots level who are deeply, deeply, you know, uh, affected by and, and deeply uh, passionate about replacing Dave Reichert and and uh, and taking back their little corner of the state. So that's really our strategy is to build the infrastructure through which candidates can succeed, but then also create infrastructure that lasts past campaigns and, and can be turned to whatever local cause or candidate that folks have going on in a particular year. You recently launched something called eCanvas. Tell us about that. Yeah, so eCanvas is an interesting tool, and it, it goes back to our theory that you know relationships are the best organizing tool, and especially in an era where there's so much mistrust of public institutions, there's so much mistrust of the news media, uh, the news media, a lot of folks get their news from Facebook. Um, and one of the reasons Facebook is so powerful is all, you know, all of those stories that are shared are validated by a relationship that you have with someone. It appears on your timeline because one of your friends shares it and it instantly becomes more credible. And so, you know, we should be using relationships to organize and we shouldn't think of volunteers as, you know, uh, sort of just cogs in the machine who go knock 50 random doors. Volunteers have incredible professional and personal networks. And what eCanvas does is lets them uh, really leverage those networks to get out the vote for Democrats. Um, so the way that it works is you would log into our eCanvas program uh, and you would sync your contacts from Gmail or Facebook or whatever, you know, uh, email provider or other, other places where you've got contacts and relationships online. Uh, we run it across our list of uh, registered voters and then we filter it down to just the folks who we think are likely to be Democrats. And then you can send out vote reminders. Um, and we set out thousands of vote reminders peer to peer from friend to friend uh, just in the last week of this primary. And we're looking back right now to see um, if there was a difference in behavior from folks who opened and received those emails versus folks who didn't. Interesting. Have you found anything yet or is it too soon to tell? It's too soon to tell um, what we you know, we have some preliminary results coming back uh, from someone who just took a quick look at it uh, that suggested that for every 100 emails that uh, that we sent, uh, it generated an additional four to five votes. Um, from people oh. who would not have otherwise voted. And, and the way we measure that is we look at people who didn't open the email versus people who did open the email. And so folks who didn't actually look at the email are sort of our control group. And folks who read that email from a friend that says, hey, I really want you to vote. Will you commit to vote are our treatment group? And, and those folks, it turns out, are, are more likely to vote. It might be a little bit of revealing the special sauce. And so if that's not something you're comfortable doing, I totally understand. But what is it that you're looking for specifically that might indicate that somebody would vote Democratic when you're, you know, kind of uh, sifting through that data? So that's a great question. And, and that sort of gets more broad, uh, broadly into the data infrastructure that we use here at the party. But uh, we have a number of models that sort of predict someone's likelihood to be a Democrat or to vote for Democrats down the ballot that were uh, created uh, in 2016 for the slew of le legislative races that we have there. And we also have 
you know, tons of information that we had from talking to people over the years and folks saying, you know, in 2012 that they wanted a Patty Murray yard sign, right? And folks who voted for, uh, you know, for Governor Inslee in 2012 and, and talked to them then. And, and so we track all that information and we keep it. And so we have a number of ways that we sort of track who we think are likely to be Democrats and not. And, and then we also have, of course, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of folks who attended caucuses last year, um, who participated in, in, you know, our Democratic caucus. And we can assume those folks are mostly Democrats as well. Right. Well, so summer is coming to a close in, you know, early September. Uh, and so what's what's next? I mean, I, I know that there's going to be a big push going into November. So what's that going to look like? Well, so, um, you know, things are going to be a little different in different parts of the state. Uh, We've been sort of taken aback by the by the demand for this um, for a summer of canvas and people who want to do it in their in their neighborhood. So we're just going to keep the ball rolling. And as the rain starts to fall in Western Washington, you know, maybe we'll focus more on phone calls and we'll have the fall of phones in Western Washington. Um, Folks in eastern Washington are just excited for the temperature to dip below 100 degrees so they can get right. out and really yeah. start canvassing. And so I think what you're going to see for the rest of this year is just us continuing to put, um, you know, our, our feet on the gas pedal. And for anyone who wants to organize locally in their community, we're going to help them do that. And, and so we're going to continue the summer of canvas work at least through the November election in some form or another. Um and then do sort of a big debrief and, and take a look at what worked and what didn't and uh, sort of have a, a debrief conversation with everyone who participated and get their feedback um, and recalibrate and recalculate for, for 2018. So anybody who's listening right now who's interested in getting involved, uh, how can they get in touch? That's my favorite question. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's two easy ways to get involved. Um, the easiest is to just actually take out your cell phone right now and uh, text the word Canvas, C-A-N-V-A-S-S to the phone number 444-999. So again, that's the word Canvas to 444-999. And you'll get a little link uh, to our Summer of Canvas sign-up page. Uh, if you're already on your computer, uh, you can just go to wahafendemocrats.org backslash Summer of Canvas, um, or you can find it on our Facebook page, uh, and you'll see the sign-up link there. Great. Well, we'll post all that information on the website. But Dylan, Kate, thanks so much, man. And keep up the great work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, and thank you for everything you're doing. We're really excited to be working together with you. So you're on the podcast. You guys, it's my mom. My mom, Jan Cox, is on the podcast uh, and specifically to talk about canvassing, which you have been doing this I summer. I have been doing it. This is my first podcast ever. <laughs> well, this is welcome. crazy. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but it's also your first canvassing ever. It is right? my first canvassing, yes. I was an activist during the Vietnam War, but that's been many, many, many years. So this is my next foray into politics. And because it's so important right now, I felt like I couldn't not do it. These are equally insane times. And so insane times call for everybody, all hands on on deck. And that's when we step out of our comfort zones and we just do what we have to do. Well, so as I said a couple weeks back... I was going to go out and canvas, and I was very fortunate that you chose me as your canvassing partner. I loved um, it. You were great. <laughs> well, I was nervous, and I think a lot of people are nervous yeah. at the prospect of going up and knocking on a stranger's door. So what were your—before you did it, were you yeah. nervous, too? I was very nervous, yeah. and I knew it was out of my comfort zone. I mean, I thought it was out of my comfort zone, but I thought, if I'm ever going to step out of it, now's the time. And I tried it, and I really liked it. I really enjoyed talking to people. Um, 
the first time we did it, we didn't find too many people home. But the ones we did, most were really happy to talk with us. And uh, we only met up with one woman who was a little reticent and didn't want her friends to know that she was going to make a phone call. But she did finally say she would make a phone <laughs> she call. Specifically said, she specifically said, I, I don't I, want my friends to know. Yeah, she said, I don't want my friends to know. She was a little reticent when we first came up. But by talking to her for a while, we sort of broke the ice. And at the end, she said, Okay, I'll make a phone call. I don't want my friends to know, but I will make a phone call. So that was good. But you didn't talk to anybody who's been overtly hostile. No, we really didn't. We've been very, very fortunate. And mostly we've been handing out flyers and going out in conjunction with Planned Parenthood, um, our indivisible Mm -hmm. Washington 8th group. And... um, and so we have met up with nothing but, but really good people, and it's been wonderful. Well, it's because you're so damn friendly, Mom. Is that it? I think I'm so right. disarming, yeah. right? Anybody will talk to me. <laughs> well, so so here's something that I would ask then. For anybody who is listening who is like either on the fence about canvassing yeah. like I was or who is just like, I don't think I can do it, what would you say to them? I would say probably give it a try. At least come out. You don't have to talk if you don't want to. You can go out with somebody who has done it before. And when you feel like jumping into the conversation, you can. And it feels very natural. After watching for a couple of houses, it feels like you want to get involved. You want to talk to them. People are generally really nice. And I have found it a really very pleasurable experience and really informative, and I plan to do more of it, and I want to do some of the Summer of Canvas where we go out and we listen. It'll be wonderful to see what people have to say, and I I suspect right now, particularly with everything that's going on, people are going to have a lot of fears, a lot of concerns, and a lot of things that they want to address. I think there will be a lot of of anger and disappointment for the ones who voted for him. But I think it's important that we at least go out and try to listen and try to understand, and maybe we can find some common ground. If we can find a way to make a bridge somewhere, possibly we can make some headway into some people. And I guess that's all we really can ask from this. But we want to listen to people and see where they stand and see where their fears are and see what they really want. You're an expert listener, and you always have been. No, it's true. Thanks. Thanks for being on the podcast, Mom. My pleasure. Jan Cox, and uh, like you, like like the lady said, get out there (laughs) and canvas. It's uh, it's not as bad. It's not as bad as you think. It's really very much fun. I hope you'll do it. Please come out and do it with us. And you should have my mom as your partner. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, sweetie. And that will do it for this week's show. Isn't she awesome? If you want to learn more about the show, head over to indivisiblepodcast.org. That is where you can find links to all the things that we talk about here. Plus, there is a searchable back catalog of shows, all kinds of good stuff. Oh, and we have a new email address, which is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Again, it is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. As always, I love hearing from you guys. So, you know, hit me up. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests. Stephen Shea and Anna Sophia Knauf. Thank you to Dylan Kate and thank you to my mom, Jan Cox. Yay, mom. And thanks as always to you for listening and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.